Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We live in a very interesting time right now. We live in an age where we can be constantly entertained. Now, I read something, I don't know who said this, it was a a novelist, I saw it in a book review, but it stamped itself on my consciousness, which is that fun is truth. And I think that's a really compelling way to express how people experience the world today. Is it fun? Yeah, okay, great, then it must be true. Is it not fun? Then it can't be true, right? They don't, we wouldn't necessarily articulate it in this way, but from a very instinctive way, this is how people go through life today in just terms of normal secular society. Fun equals truth. Now think about the next step. We now live in an age where you can be constantly entertained. Wow, that sounds like we live in the greatest of times (laughs) because we can have fun constantly. But there's something, it's almost like a sci-fi mutation in this dystopian piece of storytelling where the constant fun mutates into something malignant. And all of a sudden it becomes this dictatorship where I am enslaved to being entertained. I'm on my phone way, way too much. I've got to start thinking about ways to get out of this. But I can't even tell you how much I appreciate the fact that when Shabbos comes, I turn off my phone. And this is really One of the the great things today, I mean, every Shabbat is so amazing for so many different reasons, but the ability to turn off your phone before Shabbos starts and to say, I am your master, you are not my master. The ability to do that is enormous and it becomes progressively more enormous as we become progressively more enslaved. And so when I was growing up, you had almost like a syllogism, right? That's right, A equals B equals C. You had entertained, being entertained, equals fun, equals happiness. And now we're going into what happiness is on a deeper level. And that construct seemed to work up until recent history. I'm being entertained, I'm having fun, I'm happy. But now it seems like I'm being entertained constantly, but I'm not happy. So where did that fork in the road happen 
where all of a sudden the ability to be constantly entertained, which seems like paradise, go its separate way from being happy. How and when did that happen? And what I would like to suggest to you is that when they went their separate, you know why they, you know when you have a fork in the road, you make like a little space in between where something can drop out. You know what dropped out? Meaning. Meaning dropped out. I saw someone the other day, it made me so happy, he had a t-shirt. He was walking one way toward me and I was walking the other way. But before we crossed paths, I had time to read his t-shirt. It was so good. You ready for this? Stop making stupid people famous. <laughs> That's what his t-shirt said. Stop making stupid people famous. There's a certain class of reality shows, you know? And I, I told my kids when they were young, and I, I really wasn't being that serious. But I must have said it in a very serious, dramatic way to them, because it actually scared them. I said to them, for every minute of that show you watch, you lose an IQ point. Wow. <laughs> and it, they, they, I think it actually scared them, honestly, you know? Which, which was not really what I was trying to do. I was just kind of trying to share my opinion. <laughs> but I think that it actually scared them. And then they, for the most part, they, don't, they never really got into it so much. I mean, to a certain extent, but not so much. Meaning disappeared. Meaning disappeared. We know that there's a big difference between the way Torah looks at time and the way science looks at time. According to science, it's just time. It just is what it is. Whereas Torah has a different perspective. Torah says that time actually has a flavor to it or a personality to it. And depending on the month of the year that you're in, time will express itself in different ways. Now, there's an important point to counterbalance against that, which is that we also say time has no power. So even though we'll say things like, and we're going to get to this soon because we've entered into a, a very happy month, very wonderful time right now, the month of Adar, which is amazing. And this is a month where we increase in joy and it's a, a time where the Talmud says that if you have a court case, you should bring it in Adar. It's a very favorable time. So nonetheless, you have to balance all of that with the idea that time itself has no power. Only God has power. You know, a lot of people who fancy themselves intellects, they see an inherent sort of like conflict between Torah and science. Well, which is it? Is it science or is it Torah? And the truth is that there is only one author to the universe, and that's God. And the one who creates Torah is the same one who creates science. There is, no, there is no contradiction. There is only one single author to creation. So what happens then when the science and the Torah disagree? So that means you either got the science wrong or you got the Torah wrong. That's all, because there is no contradiction. Now, let's go a little bit further with that idea. 
What is science exactly? Science is just God's own description of how he does things. <laughs> He's just describing how he makes the world work in the language of chemistry, in the language of physics, in the language of biology. That's all it is. Just God telling you his secrets. But the amazing thing is that God always wants to maintain free choice. Free choice is absolutely one of the bottom lines of all creation. Remember, there is no other creature in all of the worlds. And when I say all the worlds, I mean the world that we inhabit and all the spiritual realms. There is no other creature that has the ability to deny God. God intentionally created us with the ability to deny him because he was fascinated by this idea where a person wasn't coerced into believing. Angels have a quantumly higher revelation of godliness. They have no choice except to believe because the reality of God is right in front of them at all times. So much so that they don't have free choice because how can they do anything wrong when they're in the presence of God and it's openly revealed? God desired a realm where that wasn't the case, where people actually, through their own free will, chose to serve God. And that's why he created us. So now, here's the thing. You know, it's funny, I had a very interesting discussion yesterday where we were talking about this idea that Everyone has the same question. I believe that everyone in the world has the same question, whether they can articulate it or not. And that is, if there's a God, why is the world so messed up? This is everybody's question. This is everybody's question. And the answer is, is because it isn't finished yet. The world isn't finished yet. A very fundamental Torah idea. And that's why God created us, to be partners with him, to finish off creation, to be the ones in partnership with him, to realize that essential vision that God had for this world even before he created the world, which is a perfect world, a world without war or hatred or hunger or any obstacles to serve him. And that's what we're bringing about. One of my favorite teachings, and I'm going to tell you one that I just realized is, is saying this exact thing. We read it in the Haftorah yesterday from Yeshaya, Isaiah. An amazing expression of this idea, but let me just introduce it first. The Zohar says that the Torah is a blueprint of reality, a blueprint of the world. It also says that the entirety of the Torah is contained within the first word of the Torah, in the word breshit. Right? In the beginning, or out of beginnings, God created the universe. So I heard from Rabbi Tatz something I've never forgotten, which is, especially I tell you this as a person who makes his living as a writer, 
that the word beginning is a very particular word because the word beginning implies middle and end, suggests a process. The very first word which contains the entire Torah is telling you right from the outset, right? If it's a blueprint, right when you walk in the door, the blueprint is telling you right at the outset, you are part of an unfolding journey. This world is unfolding toward perfection, and you are a key element in realizing that perfection. And how do we do it? Through Torah, through mitzvahs, through loving each other. That's how we do it. God gives us the tools to do it. And of course, we do it in conjunction with him. Now listen to what Yeshaya says. He says, would I bring an expected, an expectant mother to the birth stool and not bring about the birth? Can, can you just, let's think about that. That's a very powerful expression of what I just told you. In other words, just, let's just sit on that piece of imagery for a moment. Can you imagine a woman who's nine months pregnant, is in the throes of labor, and never gives birth? <laughs> like is just in that state, on the precipice of giving birth. Like we're assuming that the baby is healthy during this entire process, right? Is on the precipice of giving birth and never gives birth? You would go, well, no, that, no, <laughs> no, that, no. If a woman is already in that state, one way or another, the baby comes out. That's just the way it is. So Yeshaya is saying that that is what God is telling us about the perfection of the world. Would I bring about all of this that you see around you? which in this imagery is being compared to the pregnant state, the expectant state of a woman in her ninth month on the birth stool. That means that she's, she's ready. And not bring about the perfected world that all of this is here to create? I've read that several times, and I never realized that it was talking about this. It just seemed like... Well, I didn't really know what he was even talking about, honestly. Just sounded like something epic was going on and my brain wasn't grasping it and it's like, okay, on to the next page. So this idea is all over the place. This idea is all over the place. The idea that, that we're part of a process and it's an unfolding process and that we are key agents in it becoming realized. Now, I want to talk more about the time that we're in right now. I began by telling you about how every single month has a different flavor, right? And that the arrangement of God's name for each month, which varies month to month, is sort of like the DNA, the spiritual DNA of, of that energy that's happening in the month. Now, the different months have different correlatives, different, different things that are associated with the month. 
And there is a Torah astrology. It's a divine, it's a divine aspect of, of, of how we just understand the world that we live in. It's not the astrology of the non-Torah world. But remember, these constellations appear in the sky. And God made these constellations, and God made the sky. And God also gave us the Torah. So just because their popularization of those types of thoughts are more known to us, it shouldn't rule out our understanding that the fact that God made the sky and God made the stars and God made these constellations and God made everything and is communicating Torah to us through everything, that we should understand that there should also be a holy version of astrology. And there is. And this is in the more mystical books. And the, the greatest example is the B'nai Yisachar. B'nai Yisachar is a classic book of Torah that goes month by month and explains to you what's going on in each of the months. Very, very holy book. So the B'nai Yisachar explains this month that we're in right now, Adar, which I told you is the month of joy. So let's talk a little bit about Adar. But I really want to share with you something deep, which is its interrelationship with the month that we just experienced. But we'll get to that. Let's just talk about Adar to begin with. So Adar, most famously, is the month of Purim. And so it's a very, very joyous month. Adar correlates with the sign Pisces. Adar is the fish. So Adar takes place, so to speak, underwater which is very significant because Adar is all about hiddenness. And it's all about the fact that God is revealed in hiddenness. And so the fact that it's about hiddenness is especially interesting because out of the 12, 12 months of the year, it is the 12th month of the year. Now, the first month of the year, just so you know, is Pesach, is rather Nisan, where we have Pesach, and that's where we have all the open miracles of the Torah. So in other words, the very first month is all about the open revelation of godliness. And the very last month, the furthest month from this celebration of open miracles, remember the word Nisan, which is the month of Pesach, that's the first month, has the word Nes in it, which means miracle. So the first month is all about open revelation. But by the time that we get to the 12th month, which is the furthest month away, that's Adar. It's all about hiddenness now. Right? It's taking place underwater, where the fish live. Okay? That's hiddenness. But God also being revealed amidst the hidden where you realize that God was guiding 
all of the events of our life, even when we thought he wasn't there. That's the story of Purim, teaching us forever that whenever we think that God's not there, God is also there. In fact, God can't not be there. There is no such thing as God not being there or here. And do you know what the proof that God is here is? We're here. (laughs) We can't exist without God. This world cannot continue to be in existence without God constantly animating. So the very fact that we're here is proof that God is here. So if you say to yourself, where is God? Who is allowing your brain to work to ask the question, where is God? Except God, who is there? Okay. So there's a beautiful teaching. And then we're going to get into the interrelationship between Adar, this month that we're talking about right now, and the month that we just left. We'll get into that in a moment. You'll see there's a very, very beautiful, deep, very deep connections. So it says in the Talmud that when the month of Adar comes in, we have to increase in happiness. Okay? Now there's a companion teaching about our saddest month, right? Adar is our happiest month. What about our saddest month? That's the month of Av. It says when Av comes in, you decrease in happiness. And the rabbis point out something really wonderful here. It says in Adar, you increase in happiness. In Adar, you decrease in, in, in Av, you decrease in happiness. But it always has to be about happiness. <laughs> you're either increasing in happiness or you're decreasing in happiness. But happiness is always the standard. That is the benchmark for consciousness. See, because it could have said the following. In Adar, you increase in happiness. And in Av, you increase in sadness. But it doesn't say that. Because everything is about happiness. You're either increasing in happiness or decreasing in happiness. But it's always happiness. Now, why, why is it happiness? What is happiness? And now we're going to go deeper into the idea of what is happiness. Well, I'll tell you why happiness is important. And then we'll go deeper into it in a moment, what it is exactly. But what happiness creates is a state that's called expanded consciousness. Happiness isn't just having a smile on your face, although that's very nice. Remember, your face is part of the public domain. And just like you wouldn't take a spray paint can and vandalize like a a billboard, because that's public property, if you walk around with a scowl or a frown on your face, you are literally defacing public property because your face is part of the public domain. You have a responsibility as a good neighbor not to have graffiti sprayed all over your face, which would be a frown or a scalp. But happiness goes beyond 
this idea of just having a smile. Happiness is this, as I said, this expansion of consciousness where you realize that God is absolutely everywhere. It's very hard to understand that when you've got tunnel vision, when, when we have tunnel vision on our problems. Where all we see is our problems, basically that blocks out God. And we think it's just, I am alone with my problems. As opposed to, wow, God is absolutely everywhere, and this is just, you know, today's challenge. It's just another challenge that's coming at me. There's an author, no longer with us, named Matthew Carlson, who wrote a, a, a best-selling series of books called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And he brings an example that I, that I like very much, which is that apparently... The Golden State Bridge in San Francisco, which, by the way, if you've never seen, is, is, is a work of art, in my opinion. You look at it, and it's like, wow, it's a bridge, but it's, it's also a work of art. It's, it's magnificent just to look at it. It really is. It's really something. Well, it's this red color, and I guess because it's always foggy there, it's constantly rusting which means that they have to paint it a lot. But it goes a step further. As soon as they finish painting it and get to the end, already they have to start painting it and going back on the other side. In other words, they're never not painting it. The job is never done. And that's an example that he brings for us to give us the proper perspective. Because the way most of us go through life is, ah, oh, another, oh, that just broke. Or, but, but let's think about that for a moment. Because there is a hidden assumption in there that at a certain point you have no more problems. <laughs> that you have nothing left to do. Which is completely erroneous. That's completely erroneous. So instead of thinking, ah, oh, another problem, or ah, that went wrong, I got to fix that, to just understand, what will I have to fix today? <laughs> what will need my attention today? And then if you switch into that modality, then you're just flowing with life and flowing with reality. Because until our last breath, we're not done. So Adar, Adar is all about happiness. And let's now go a little bit deeper and try to explain what happiness is. And try to explain the month that leads into Adar. Because that's going to have a lot to do with why all of a sudden Adar is manifesting happiness. Right? It's just not manifesting it out of nowhere. There's a flow to the months, a flow to the energy of the months. So if all of a sudden in Adar we're happy, well, I want to know why are we happy? What's the context? What made me happy? So now to know that, we've got to explore the month that just followed, right? Or the month we were just in. 
That's the month of Shvat. Now the, the zodiac sign, or in, in Torah we say the mazel, the mazel of Shvat is the water drawer, which correlates with Aquarius. The deli, that's, that's the, the bucket. Now the Talmud says wherever you, wherever it says water, it means Torah. Like, just like you can't live without water, you can't live without Torah. And there are many other similarities, too. And why is Aquarius, why is the water drawer, the zodiac sign, so to speak, says the B'nai Yisachar, of the Jewish people? Because that is the time of drawing water, which is the time of drawing Torah. In other words, we're taking buckets of Torah, buckets of Torah. But we have to understand it a little bit more deeply because it's not just Torah. Shvat represents a very special kind of Torah. First of all, the Orgadaliahu the points out something very interesting, which is that Shvat is we're one third into the year. We have you can you can divide up the year into three groupings of four, right? Three times four is twelve. So what's the first four months of the year? That's Tishrei, Cheshvin, Kislev, and Teves. So those are the first four months, and then you get to Shvat. Okay, so why is that significant that we're one-third into the year? Listen to this. This is amazing. Because if you measure from the top of your head to your heart, that's one-third of your body. <laughs> that's where the mind and the heart come together. In other words, every new year, there's a new energy coming into the year. And it takes a while for you to assimilate, so to speak, to concretize what that new energy, what that new light is. And so from the mind to the heart, that's the journey from Tishrei, which is when the new year starts, to the month of Shvat. Now we see an amazing illustration of this. We're going to go a little deeper now. There are five books in the Torah. The fifth book of the Torah is Devarim, or in English, Deuteronomy. Moshe Rabbeinu said the book of Devarim. His prophecy was so high when he said it. It was his farewell speech to the Jewish people before he died. His prophecy was so high. In fact, the first letter of that book of the Torah begins with the letter Aleph. It's the only book of the Torah that begins with the letter Aleph. Aleph, of course, is the first letter of the Torah, or rather of the Aleph Beis, but also it's composed of three letters, two Yuds and a Vav. Now you make a Yud, a Vav, and another Yud, and that adds up to 26, which is the name of God, Yud Ke Vav Ke. So the letter Aleph is so high and when Moshe Rabbeinu starts this prophecy, remember, Moshe 
is the greatest prophet for all times, even greater than Mashiach. Mashiach will be greater in other things, but not in prophecy. Moshe remains the greatest prophet for all times, forever. So now, Moshe from this very super high level of prophecy is giving over a recapitulation of everything that's gone on before in the Torah. And the Abarbanel explains it like this, because you could ask yourself, if Moshe said the last book of the Torah, how are there five books of the Torah? Say there's four books of the Torah, and then there's the book of Moshe, called Devarim. But no, that's the fifth book of the Torah. Why? Because after he said it, God said, now write it down. <laughs> In other words, the prophecy was so high that God was like, you took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> that's, that, those are my words. So, yeah, that's now the fifth book of the Torah. But you see something awesome here, which is you see an evolution to the books of the Torah where now the last book of the Torah is actually being said by us. Meaning to say that you've got a complete integration of our soul and the divine soul. So, which month do you think Moshe Rabbeinu starts saying over this book in? The month of Shvat. When we're talking about drawing water, we're really talking about on the highest level, Moshe drawing down this level of water, which represents for all of us, for all times, our ability to synthesize all of the information and to internalize it and to make it real and whole with the way we see the world. That we should see the world with our eyes through God's eyes simultaneously, and there is no contradiction at all. Like what happened at Mount Sinai when God spoke. Everybody saw it differently, but everybody saw the same thing, and it was the word of God. So again, this month, which is the hallmark of this level of integrated Torah, Shvat, leads into the month of happiness. When we can make the Torah real and coherent and our own, that creates happiness. Or, to give you a very simple visual, you take that bucket of water, remember, water is Torah. You take that bucket of water, but it's not just any water. It's not just any Torah. It's Torah that you've really made your own, but it's still God's. It's the pure, authentic Torah, but you understand it with your own intellect. God's Torah, with your own intellect. You take that bucket of water, and then you pour it into the next month of Adar, and that's the month of happiness. You are creating that happiness through your understanding of the divine plan and your role in it. You know, it's always been true 
but I think today it's more true than ever. If you want to, like, why is it that you have very intelligent people who are so disconnected with Torah, with, with truth, with, with the higher, deeper things that we're talking about? So Reb Shlomo put it this way. He says, because they haven't been touched. They haven't had that experience where all of a sudden it's broken through and they felt something. You know, the, the sort of like the, uh, the pathological side of, of not feeling touched is, you don't read about it so much, but there was a period where you, I read about it all the time, this phenomenon called, and I think this is one of the reasons when God revealed the Torah at Mount Sinai, it says that all of a sudden the desert bloomed with flowers. There was thunder and there was lightning and there was a chauffeur blast that just got louder and louder and louder and louder. Our souls flew out of our bodies. We could see sounds and we could hear colors. All of our senses were rearranged. Why all the pyrotechnics? Why all the pyrotechnics? And, and the answer, I think, is because God wanted to create an experience for us. So it's very important that we have an experience. So someone put it this way, I thought it was interesting, where you can have like a PhD who, you know, nothing gets through to them, but they come to someone's house for Shabbos and they have a little chicken soup and the chicken soup changes their life. Why? The person's such a great intellect. Why is it that the chicken soup changes their life when you've made like some amazing arguments from some of the greatest thinkers in history and it's bounced off them? Because now they've had an experience, that's why. They felt the warmth of Shabbos. They felt the Shabbos table. The Shabbos table in itself is something holy. And they've had the soup. They've experienced something warm and delicious. So there are a lot of people who have that, that soup, so to speak, right? And they go, wow, I really want to come more on Friday nights. And then they find out that there's 613 mitzvahs. <laughs> and they're like, what are you doing to me? Like, I just wanted some soup, you know? It's like you're hitting me across the head with like a two-by-four board. Like, you know, have rachmanis. Have mercy on me. So why are there so many mitzvahs? Like I get it, there's a God. And I get it, he loves me. And I get it that he's everywhere. I get it. I get that my life has meaning. But what, what's with all the mitzvahs? <laughs> and it's, it's important to understand this because people can reach a very backwards conclusion which is that the rabbis are control freaks or that God is a control freak and he wants to regulate every aspect of my life from the moment I am conscious in the morning, which is when the mitzvahs start, by the way, right? To my very last breath at the end of my life. What's with all the mitzvahs? And the answer is, the whole world is filled with godliness. 
I am never not standing before God, which means that everything, every moment, even the most mundane of objects can be elevated and sanctified. That there is no such thing as a secular moment. There is no such thing as a secular moment. And it's not that God is trying to control us. God has gifted us with a Torah that allows us to see how to uplift every single moment, no matter how ordinary it looks in our eyes. And if you look at it this way, that God fills the entire world and God keeps us alive every single moment, there has to be a way to elevate every single moment. It's not that, why is there so much Torah law? There has to be. Because how else am I going to know how to sanctify every single moment in time? Okay, and so like everything else, you take it slowly. You take one step, you integrate that, Take another step. It doesn't have to be the entirety of the mitzvah. It can be part of the mitzvah. So I'm doing a little part of the mitzvah now. I'll do another little part of the mitzvah. So I can't keep a whole Shabbos. But you know what? For this number of hours, I'm not going to use my cell phone. And you take that approach with everything. And you say, well, wait a second. Aren't I being a hypocrite then? Why are you being a hypocrite? If I tell you, take two of these pills, it's going to save your life. And you say, I can only take one of the pills. Are you being a hypocrite? <laughs> no, you're taking... I'm being a hypocrite. Let me give it to you one more way. Imagine a ball of yarn. And imagine that this ball of yarn is infinite. It's made out of infinity. Now imagine I take a little strand of this yarn and I snip it off. Now I have a little piece of yarn. Well, that's a little piece of infinity. In other words, every mitzvah is a piece of infinity. That's like a snip from the ball of yarn. And if I snip that piece of yarn in half, that little piece that I have is also a piece of infinity. <laughs> It's, it's all infinite, whatever we can grab onto. And when we do the mitzvahs, we internalize infinity. We internalize the infinite. Because when our soul leaves our body at the end of 120 years, we live for all of eternity. And right now is this great opportunity, this blessed opportunity that God gives us to supercharge our eternity with infinity. <laughs> to supercharge our eternity with the infinite. So can you imagine the more rocket fuel you have every time you do a mitzvah, you're internalizing rocket fuel. The more rocket fuel you have, the more you sail higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher forever. Right? And so now let's get back to this idea of the connection between Shvat and Adar. Again, Shvat is our mazel, the mazel of the Jewish people, where we draw down Torah, right? Because Torah is water. 
It's the water, the water drawer, right? Where you take buckets, where you take buckets of Torah, but not just buckets of any Torah, as we discussed. Like Moshe Rabbeinu saying the book of Devarim in the month of Shvat. A level of Torah where you've integrated this knowledge and become one with it. And you take that and you pour it into the next month, which is Adar, which, not by coincidence, is the month of happiness. So what is happiness? If you think of the divine flow of time, the divine flow of the months, what is happiness? Happiness is meaning. Happiness is meaning. When you understand that every single thing counts, that everything has value. We, we had a, a school visit us this past Shabbos here at the Happy Minion from Vancouver. Place was filled. It was, it was amazing because the previous Shabbos we had a whole big group from Mexico, like south of the border. Then the, the very next Shabbos we had a big group from Canada, north of the border. It was really, the, this place is really hopping, you know? And so there was a very intelligent boy. I, I gave a, a, a talk to them, and he kind of like made sure that he was sitting next to me, you know, so that he could then kind of ask me a bunch of questions. And, and he was a smart kid, you know? You could see his mind is really working. He really wants to try to understand. And he said to me, the only difference between us and the monkeys is that we have the ability to ascribe meaning to things. And he said, so for instance, the ancient Mesopotamians saw the value of the sun, and they said, you know, the sun really helps grow the crops. The sun is so valuable in terms of our life. So we will ascribe and attribute godly meaning to the sun. But really, that's just us ascribing meaning. Now, in terms of, just to take it a step deeper, and then I'll tell you what I responded to him, the Maharal points out that the word Adam, which is, means human being, Adam shares the same root as the word dimyon, which means imagination. It's an, an amazing sort of x-ray into what it means to be a human being. We, we have the ability to ascribe with our imagination either falsehood or truth. Because you can imagine something that's completely off and wrong. Or you can take a single point and you can expand on it in the most amazing way through the power of your imagination, which is a blessing. can go either way. So creating idols, like saying that the sun is God, would be an expression of us taking our imagination and misfiring it, misdirecting it. But his point was that there is no meaning, but we ascribe meaning to it and we ascribe godliness to it. So what I said back to him is, basically what you're saying is, let me put what you're saying in, in a more famous way. Did God create man or did man create God? Yes. 
And he was like, oh, yeah, that's a much better way to say it. <laughs> and I said, there's a very clear answer to that. God created man. It's not a debate. God created man, period. That's, that's what it is. And then I said to him, the difference between man and a monkey is not our ability to ascribe meaning. The difference is, is that human beings have a godly soul. That's the difference. And that God puts a piece of himself in every single human being. And that's what your soul is. And so when you see meaning in other things, the godliness in you is recognizing the godliness in the world. You are uncovering and revealing meaning. You are not ascribing meaning and manufacturing meaning. He says, well, but there's so many religions and they're all saying different things. So, so, and I said to him, look, imagine there are 10 people and I give them, I put them in separate rooms and I give them all the same math problem. One plus one equals, and I have to, and I give them time to answer the question. And I come back, this one says one plus one equals five. This one says one plus one equals 10. This one says one plus one equals 11. That's an interesting answer. <laughs> this one says one plus one equals zero. Okay, he's obviously on drugs. <laughs> so, <laughs> and this one says one plus one equals two. I said, does the presence of lack of truth means that there is no truth? Okay, so only one person got the right answer. Does that mean that therefore, because there's so many wrong answers, that there is no truth? Or to put it into the words of my father, one time he said to me, common sense isn't common. You're not going to have your happiness served to you on a platter. You've got to work for your happiness and you've got to earn your happiness. And you've got to work and earn your happiness by doing things that are meaningful and significant. And not just once and not just twice, every single day. Because that's what we're here for. And when you do that, and you're able to actually take pride in the way you're spending your time, you will feel a light glowing inside of you. And that's what we'll describe as happiness. And it doesn't mean that all your problems are going to disappear necessarily. Because just like painting and repainting the Golden State Bridge happens, right, to our last breath in this world. But things will be contextualized. You'll say, yeah, there's this and there's that. But there's this. And guess what? In four more days at Shabbos. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.